What is a soulmate? This is the question that haunts so many people. And not only does it haunt the tenants of the innocents, it keeps them up at night. They stare at their ceilings covered in glow-in-the-dark stars and wonder, is that person meant for me? Or is that person meant for me? What about that person? Can I have all three? And if I can't, why not? I'm rich. I should be able to get what I want, right? And as they drift off to sleep, and their soul aches and yearns for the answer of what a true soulmate is, who their truest soulmate will be, the question is answered all the time, every season. It may not seem possible, but countless souls have found their mates during the endless seasons of blinding innocence. The tenants aren't the only ones dying to live here. Love is too. Love is also dying to live here. Who touched the control board? Let's try that again. This is Blinding Innocence. How impossible is it to find your soulmate? What is the nature of a soulmate? What on earth is a soulmate? These are the themes Blinding Innocence comes back to again and again every season. It's these love stories that keep the viewers coming. Sure, a good murder mystery is all fun and games, but a love story? There is a reason Hallmark is made bank at Christmas time, because everyone wants to see a happy ending. And while Blinding Innocence isn't always handing out happy endings, there is your fair share of love to go around to keep everyone's loins on fire. Hearts! I mean hearts. To keep everyone's loins ablaze. Hearts! Hearts are ablaze. The writers try and make sure there's enough give and take between the two characters who are meant to be together. It's one thing to write about chemistry, but if two actors don't have it on set, the writers go back and rework the story until they get two actors together who have natural chemistry. And that's when we get love stories out of the blue, because the writers find out how different actors have heat with each other on the set. And so love stories come out of left field. I mean, the best love stories are the ones you don't see coming. And when said soulmates find each other, then what? Their stories almost always get stale. Which is why the writers have Blinding Innocence characters do their cat and mouse chase, their dog and pony show. It's why every rose has its thorn. It's why these lovers grab the tiger by the tail for so long. Because once they do get together, the fun's over. And you know what that means. The only thing left to do once soulmates get together is to break them up. Danica's cleavage grew long as her slip shimmied and swayed the more she moved. In front of her was Natasha her latest conquest. I know I haven't lived here very long, Danica said, but I've had my eye on you the moment I moved in. Natasha giggled. I'm very flattered. She poured the warm water into a plastic tub and then sprinkled it with Epsom salt. 
She opened a bottle of lavender oil and tapped a few drops in. She dipped her fingers into the small pool of water and made her fingers dance as she mixed it up. Calm music hummed in the background and candlelight danced across the mirrors in the room. Natasha noticed that there were so many mirrors and asked about them. The better to see you, my dear, Danica said. Natasha giggled. It reflects the candlelight so much and it makes it so dreamy. Behind Danica was the Rembrandt painting, and Natasha felt like it was watching her. She winked at it and gave it a little wave by wiggling her fingers. Now please give me your right foot, Danica said. She gently took Natasha's foot, held the red-soled Louboutin heel, and slid it off, and then placed her foot in the water. Oh, that water feels so nice, Natasha said. Danica grabbed Natasha's left foot, removed the shoe, and then almost gasped. A round brown mole stuck out on the side of her large toe, and it was topped with three thick, glossy, dark hairs. My mother once told me that an angel kissed me there, Natasha said. <clears throat> Forcing away the urge to gag, Danica placed Natasha's left foot into the water. Before she could begin, Danica realized how dirty the water had already gotten. She began to fear that the water might burn her skin. But she had a conquest, a goal, and she pushed through and carried on. She grabbed the cheese grater dry skin heel thing that lay on the floor and picked up Natasha's right foot and began to use the grater on her cracked, dry, crispy, calloused heel. By the time she was done, a clumpy mess of dead skin that felt like cold oatmeal laced her fingers, and when she dropped it into the water, it made a thick, plopping sound. My feet are going to be beautiful for the wedding, Natasha said. But before Danica could begin on Natasha's right foot, she heard voices, and her bedroom door was thrown open. Shadows of two men stood in her doorway. Natasha! Danica, what are you doing? Panic, she picked up the cheese grater and threw it at the stranger. It hit him right between the eyes. He tripped on his feet, fell forward, and his face hit the tub of water, filled with Natasha's dead skin foot essence. In the candlelight, Danica realized the man that had fallen down was Natasha's fiancé, Jameson. But the other man ran out. She ran after him, realizing it had to be Henrik, but she was too late. The door to her unit was wide open, and he was gone. She turned back to her bedroom to finish what she started. She had come too far to let a man get in her way. Did you see that? Henrik, Jameson, Natasha, and Danica all in one scene together. And what is Danica's conquest? Have you figured it out yet? I haven't. Instead, I saw that cheese grater thing and remembered this one time I got a pedicure and it brought back nightmares. So, I was at my pedicure salon called The Ingrown Toenail. And after my feet were soaking in the lavender Epsom salt deadly nightshade water... 
the pedicurist lady grabbed my cankle with her talon-like hands and snarled at me. I swear she had fangs, and then she hissed. Her hot breath burned my cankle, and then she started filleting my heel with her cheese grater tool. As the clumpy bits of dead skin, Parmesan grossness clumped away from the tool and dropped into the water like melting ice cream, she stood up, reached her gnarled hands to the sky, and started to shriek like a banshee on some horrible conquest. And, and, and I ended up with smooth feet and hooray for those cheese graters that can ease callous skin. Sorry about that. Now it's time to get back to my recap. Remember, Henrik is chasing after Danica, who he believes is his ultimate soulmate. But Danica keeps pushing him away because she's on some kind of conquest. There were some major hints dropping in that last scene. Were you able to figure it out? And you can't forget how Natasha and Jameson were planning a wedding on the rooftop of the Innocents. Remember, they hired Daphne, who had a giant binder that weighed as much as a bomb. Speaking of Daphne the wedding planner extraordinaire. We haven't heard from her in a while, have we? I wonder if she's dead. I mean, I know there's a murder being investigated on the 23rd floor, but uh, let's go see and make sure she hasn't been killed yet. Wedding planner extraordinaire saw the police lights. Using the stairs, she ran up to the 23rd floor and heard the voices of Jonathan Nightingale and those detectives. And that's where she learned how the body of Mr. McClick, Mr. McClick, was found. But one of the voices sounded familiar. Could it be? No, it couldn't. Could it? No, it wasn't possible. But was it? It had to be possible. The air inside her lungs began to catch fire. There was only one person from the police department that was so familiar with the innocents and all their murders, and that was Inspector Nards. Was that his voice she heard? The only way she'd find out is if he'd come knock on her door. She ran to the door, squinted to look through the peephole to see a giant blue bloodshot eye magnified more with the help of a monocle. It twitched left and right. The eyeball vibrated and pulsed with wetness. Then a heavy lid blinked over it. A small bug flew around the wet juices of the whites of the ocular organ and then landed right by the blue iris. <gasps> Daphne pulled back in shock swallowed and then squinted again to watch further. The small bug began to swim in the fluid of the eye and then used its small buggy arms to bathe and twitch and buzz into the backstroke. Daphne opened the door to find it was, in fact, Inspector Nards. Oh, Nards, I thought it was your voice I heard up on the 23rd floor, Daphne said, pulling Inspector Nards into her condo. He was wearing his classic trench coat, the one he never buttoned. It remained open, and it always let her eyes down to look at his clever patch. She screamed and stepped back. What? Nards asked, stepping to her. A ghost, Daphne said. I thought I heard the sound of the ghost that lives here. You've never mentioned a ghost, he said, reaching for her. 
Well, if you visited me on a regular basis, then maybe you'd learn that I live in a haunted condo. That can't be true, he said, his mustache wiggling as he spoke. He grabbed her hands and they went to the couch to sit down. It is true, she said. Whenever the ghost appears, it's usually when I have a fan on. I hear this evil whisper of a name, or the words clever patch are painted in blood on the walls. What even is a clever patch? I don't even know what that means. A band-aid, Nard said, caressing Daphne's hands. It's definitely a patch that's clever, and it heals. Oh, Nards, Daphne mused. You just might be right. A band-aid is definitely a clever patch, isn't it? And speaking of healing, she giggled and took his hand and drew it close to her. Clever patch. Did you hear that? Daphne said, standing up, pulling Nards up with her. There it is, the ghost. But you don't have a fan on, he said, looking around. I do, in my bedroom, she said. You're not safe here, he said, pulling her towards the door. I can't go out there. There's a murderer loose, she cried. I can protect you, he whispered, pulling her close, grabbing her hand and leading it down to his clever patch. There it is again, she called out. She turned from Nards and ran to her bedroom to turn off the fan. No, don't, he shouted after her. I don't have a good feeling about that. But it was too late. The minute she reached her bedroom, she let out a blood-curdling scream. Not a murderer and a ghost. This has never happened in the history of blinding innocence. It's either a ghost or a murderer, but never both at the same time. It's not even May Sweeps. What is happening? The producers must be feeling the pressure to complicate the storyline since all those streaming dramas are really starting to take off on Netflix and Hulu and Cracker Barrel's new streaming network. It's such an uncharted territory these days. Those fancy streaming shows can cuss and show all the body parts and have the money to help create amazing CGI special effects, but do they have good writing? Blinding Innocence does. The writers aren't afraid to switch it up, kill off characters, or introduce supernatural elements to the show. I wouldn't be surprised if Blinding Innocence ended up on another planet or had some kind of dimensional multi-universeness take place. I mean, just think. Betty Lou has been in every season of Blinding Innocence for the past 60 years, right? So... What if Betty Lou existed in different dimensions? And what if time was different in those dimensions? Who knows how long Betty Lou has been around? Based on the science, Betty Lou hasn't just been around for 60 years. Betty Lou is infinite. Betty Lou was and is and will always be. Betty Lou is forever. Speaking of Betty Lou, it looks like she's done sobbing in the hallway on the 23rd floor. But I did not see her going to that person's door.
Jonathan Nightingale just lit some candles, poured a glass of red wine, closed the curtains, patted and fluffed his pillows, popped the zit on his nose that was beginning to become a white head, vacuumed the carpet, dusted the blinds, watered the plants, and started a fire when he heard a knock on his door. Without looking through the people, he opened the door, grabbed the woman, and pulled her in. Standing in front of him was the sultry silhouette of Vivica Monsieur. He grabbed her by the waist, but she pulled out a cigarette. Remember, back in episode two, she was totally smoking cigarettes and lit it, blowing smoke all up into his business. He wanted to cough, but he took another whiff of the air around him, and it wasn't a regular cigarette. It was a clove, and there was only one person at the Innocence that enjoyed smoking cloves. He let go of the woman and said, You had me fooled. The woman wasn't Vivica. She clawed out her face, stuck her fingernails into her forehead, and pulled out her flesh. Her features stretched and elongated, and once she was finished, the woman standing in front of Jonathan Nightingale was no other than Miss Betty Lou Glick. The disguise you gave me worked, she said. So why did you come to my place, he asked. I don't care if people think you committed the murder, and I don't care if people think you and Vivian committed the murder. Jonathan interrupted her. Who's Vivian, he asked. Betty Lou finished taking the pliable mask disguise off her face and handed over the squished ball of a face to Jonathan. I don't know, Betty Lou said indignantly. Some woman. You mean Vivica, Jonathan said. Betty Lou walked into Jonathan's complex and noticed how immaculate it was. Candles were lit, a glass of wine was on the table, and there was a pump bottle of hand sanitizer. Jonathan said, pushing Betty Lou out of the way. That's not what you think it is. It's hand sanitizer. Doing what it is I do, it's good to have it on hand. Betty Lou tried to muffle a giggle. Doing what it is you do, she asked. She walked over to the coffee table, picked up the glass of wine, and looked at Jonathan. You poured me a glass of wine, she said, and she allowed the entire contents of the glass go down her throat. It warmed her esophagus, and she released a loud burp from her fleshly lipstick lips. Jonathan walked over to the bar, pulled out another wine glass, uncorked the bottle that was on the counter, and poured himself a glass. He tossed it back, the entire glass, I mean, the whole shebang. And when he was done, he smiled, and... <laughs> Is that all you can do? Betty Lou said. She walked over to Jonathan, poured another glass of wine, swallowed air, chucked it, and... <clears throat> Good Lord, woman, Jonathan said. He reached for Betty Lou, leaned in, and kissed her. Then she pulled away. No sugar for you until you... <clears throat> show me what it is you were going to... <clears throat> show me. He grasped her hand and led her to his bedroom, he threw open the door to his walk-in closet, and Betty Lou gasped. This is the most organized walk-in closet I have ever seen. She turned and tried to give Jonathan a kiss, but he pushed her away, the palm of his hand encapsulating her face. Not yet, he whispered. He unhooked the earrings from Betty Lou's ears and showed them to her. I was inspired by your taste, Jonathan said, jingling the earrings in front of her.
He pulled a container off the shelf and placed it in front of Betty Lou. Things are about to get confusing, Jonathan said. He pulled off the lid and threw Betty Lou's earrings into the bin. Apparently, they found an earring that looks like one of these at the murder scene, Jonathan said. Betty Lou looked down at a container filled with emerald earrings as large and as dramatic as costume jewelry. It's time to start getting rid of people at the Innocence, Jonathan said, and someone has already started the fun. Welcome to the Innocence, where everyone is just dying to live. What exactly is Danica's conquest? What happened to Daphne, Inspector Narta's secret lover? Are Betty Lou and Jordan Nightingale behind Mr. McClickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickclickcl